This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're recapping the London Design Festival. We visit the R for Repair exhibition at the V&A Museum and speak to London Design Medal winner Sandy Powell, as well as Maria Porro, an important figure in contemporary furniture design. Plus, we stop in at the Fiera Habitat Furniture Fair in Valencia. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. While the focus of today's show might be on recapping the London Design Festival, we're quickly heading to Valencia first, which is, might I add, world capital of design for 2022. It's also where the furniture fair, Feria Habitat, has recently taken place. Monocle's Julia Webster visited the fair and caught up with the designer Hector Serrano, who has worked for the likes of Rocker and Muji and showcased at trade fairs across the world. In Valencia, he was showing his new collection, Zaloc, a shapely group of tables, chairs and lounges produced for outdoor furniture brand Maui. Hector began by sharing his journey as a furniture designer. Well, I'm from Valencia. I studied here, but then I studied as well in London for a couple of years, and then I lived in London for 15 years and then moved back to Valencia. I set up my studio right when I finished at the RCA in, in London. So I've been working in, in, with the studio around 21 years now. And what we do is product design, furniture, lighting, accessories. And then we have as well one part of the business where we do spaces and we call it uh, Borealis, where we do exhibition design, installations, brands like, or companies like Telefonica, La Caixa, etc. And this year you're presenting an outdoor furniture collection here at Feria Habitat. What's the past few days been like? It feels like a, a positive vibe. Um, I think the last time it was before the pandemic. And, and you can see that the, there was not that many people, it's quite empty, and it was not that nice atmosphere and I think this year I think as well because Valencia is world design capital mm-hmm. so I think that helps as well to bring more more public to to the fair and we're standing here um, looking at your outdoor furniture collection that you you're presenting this year could you tell us a little bit about it yeah the collection is called Salok it's for a um, company called Mowi and the distinction of the collection is the is made out of die-cast aluminium and injection aluminium. And uh, the interesting thing is that we use uh, large molds of die-cast aluminium in order to design the structure of the sofas and armchairs. And that gives us a lot of freedom in terms of um, formal language to get um, a very organic language and natural feeling, which that was what we are trying to, to achieve. It's uh, 100% recycled aluminium and 100% recyclable aluminium. It's a long-lasting forever because it's the, you can repair it and lacquer again if you have any crash or, or, or anything happen with the piece. It's a very robust piece uh, that lasts for longer. As the company has different divisions in, in Asia, America and, and Europe, it can be transport the assembly and then assembling on the division and then lacquer and, and send it to the clients. It's modular, so you can get all the different configurations. And then the collection is a large collection of plants, pots, chest lawns, sofas, and tables. And um, it's increasingly important to 
innovate with these materials. Why was that a core part of the design? We've been very lucky to have the brief that we had with uh, with the company Nacho from uh, from Maui. I think that one of the first meetings that we have, we were discussing about the size of the mold, how big we can do the mold in order to design the piece, and that was very very important because depends of the of the size you have one freedom or, or one. You can design one way or another way, and you have more or less freedom. We didn't have any restrictions, like you could do as big as you want. So that's what uh, we tried to get as big as we thought it was make sense, which was all the whole side of the of the sofa is one piece that makes it very very robust and very unique because you can only do the you can create the, the language that the salon has through if you have that size of wall. Otherwise it would be impossible to do any other process. Normally, in outdoor furniture, most of the pieces are done with extrusion aluminum or extrusion um, steel, which is um, the joints end up being uh, hard joints. The idea is to change that paradigm and try to make it a more soft, natural, and organic uh, language, more welcoming in some how. That was Hector Serrano speaking to Julia Webster. Now we're picking up where we left off last week by recapping the London Design Festival and heading to the v Museum where the exhibition, R for Repair, launched as part of the celebrations. A transcontinental collaboration, R for Repair showcases 10 items submitted by their owners that have been repaired by 10 different Singaporean and London-based designers. Its aim is to shift attitudes towards consumer culture and address global waste by showing that the act of repairing can bring new life to sentimental or damaged objects. Monocle's Tamsin Howard visited the exhibition to find out more. Oh, hi, I'm Hans. I'm from Singapore. So I'm a designer and also an educator. I'm Jane, a design curator and consultant from London. We made an exhibition uh, during the pandemic about a year ago. And uh, this time around, yeah, we were really excited to be able to kind of like do a similar process in London as well, working with Jane as the co-curator, yeah, to invite designers from Singapore and London and to work with objects also from Singapore and London. What really interested me was that when we made a call for objects, some really curious things arrived. You know, a broken saucer, uh, a dog's ball that had been punctured, um, but they were things that obviously meant a huge amount to their owners who were always more moved by the stories because we realised that that's the, the attachment that people have to things. I don't think we necessarily started with the objects first or the designers, we had both. Yeah, and we were finding interesting yeah, matches between the designers and the objects for, for repair. Uh, so I was introduced to the Yip sisters in Singapore uh, and they explained to me about this really fascinating, strange object. It's been a family heirloom uh, for many years and it was originally gifted as a housewarming present. That's Dean Brown, founder of Brown Office, and he's been tasked with repairing a children's clock from Singapore. You have this truly remarkable global story um, where you have a clock that was in Singapore, uh, but it was uh, created by an American company, uh, the Disney Company, uh, about a British character, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, And when you start looking at the the clock assembly, it was assembled in Taiwan and manufactured in China. Uh, So the clock was originally one time zone, uh, and I've kind of redesigned the clock so that it has three time zones. 
Uh, the large time zone on the top of the clock uh, is representative of the Yip sisters in Singapore. Uh, you also have two smaller clocks, uh, that of the Walt Disney Company, Burbank, California. The third clock, which is 100 Acre Wood, East Sussex, which is the fictitious home of Winnie the Pooh and friends. What was the correspondence like between you and the Yip sisters? Uh, we, had a, we had a really nice Zoom call in the beginning of the process. Uh, and they were explaining what they enjoyed about it, which was the kinetic quality. I've kind of given it a makeover so that there's a lot more kinetic qualities. Uh, So by introducing two new clock movements, you also allow Winnie the Pooh and Piglet to move as well. In essence, all of the main important parts are not only there, but they are kind of accentuated by the repair. While some of the objects have been given a more artistic interpretation, other object repairs are more discreet. It's just a pair of spectacles uh, 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 donated by a Korean lady who was living in Singapore. Yeah, and uh, it was broken by her daughter who was just playing and just dumping and I think she stepped on it or something. And we gave this to a designer called uh, Kinetics. Instead of repairing this broken piece of spectacles, what they did was they requested the scan, the, the 3D scans of the owner's head. And, uh, and lo and behold, what we had in the end was actually a, a, a printed, 3D printed head. But the head in this case was manipulated to fit the broken spectacles instead. Yeah, so the idea was really to, uh, to communicate the idea that, hey, you know, maybe it's not the thing that needs repairing. Maybe sometimes we can you know, rethink and, and, and see it quite differently from our perspective. I mean, that's quite different from, say, this the clock radio down here, yeah. where you can't necessarily, on first look, you can't yeah. see how mm. the designer has... Right, there we yeah. go. <laughs> so can you describe what you just did there? <laughs> well, I just waved my hand over it, and it activated the clock mm. radio. And if I've got the story right, it was um, a couple who moved to the US and were yes. living apart, is yes. that right, Hans? Yeah. Um, and one of them bought for each of them this a clock radio like this, um, but it stopped functioning. Um, but the designer instead of repairing it to being a functional thing, repaired it to tell little stories, I think, about their time in the US. There's so many different iterations of repair here. We should expand the idea of repair Mm. because just to repair the function is so um, monosyllabic in a way in the repair landscape. So we thought it's also very playful too. But I think it's the idea of attachment Mm. because I think if, if you can make people care about things, they'll keep them. And if they don't care, they'll trash them. The largest item in the Arthur Repair exhibition is a large 18th century sewing chest, which was discovered by a woman who, after the death of her grandmother, ventured into the attic to sort her belongings. She opened the chest to find an intricate painting by her late grandmother, hidden from the world. She entrusted the task of repair to London-based Japanese-Austrian designer Ryo Kobayashi. First of all, I started to repair everything in a way to try to uh, bring back to the original shape. Uh, once I've done that, I wanted to just extend the legs. So I felt like, okay, let's, let's make this like open up everything and then, you know, let it fly away. I kind of wanted to like open up and then make that kind of like a table, which is actually a, a centerpiece that people are like gathering around it. It's like always in the, you know, in front of the people. Kobayashi expanded the chest into a glass tabletop, exhibiting the grandmother's painting of a bird beneath. The designer used cherry, sapele and walnut to fix and extend the legs as well, using a traditional Japanese wood joinery technique. And then I started with the one, 
one leg, which is because all of the joints looks different. So I started like, oh, okay, let's try the fast one. So for me, this piece is really a mix, you know, even in its technical way of repairing and putting woodwork together, a mix of cultures. And that's, that's really fascinating for me as well. And uh, so to some extent, the designers were not just designing or redesigning or repairing the physical objects. They were also adding the interpret- their own interpretation of the stories of the owners. But then also I wanted to create a joint. I could have used like straight wood or something, but I wanted to join the, the story with the existent story and then my story and then which comes to from now on with the owner. So that's why I used uh, yeah, kind of like a traditional Japanese uh, joining technique. What was it like chatting to the owner and, and that relationship? Was it ongoing or...? Chatting to the owner, it was uh, fantastic because I have never uh, ne- met uh, Eleanor yet, but um, we had a uh, Zoom chat. The one amazing thing was like she was already following my work so she, I got the full trust and I felt it and then I really felt com- confident just work on this piece. I mean, the interviews between the designers and the owners were fascinating because we tried to choose people who would really respond. So there's much about the psychology of the objects as the physical thing and it's about, much about sort of burnishing a memory as restoring the function. When it boils down to personal stories and personal you know, narratives, uh, it really it really breaks down these cultural differences. How could we see repair as inspiring, not just as restoration, not just as how cobblers used to mend shoes? I think the value of repair in the case of this show is exploring creative repair and the possibilities for new narratives or expanding narratives and transformation, multidimensional rather than just the functional side of things. But Jane reminds us that this isn't the only value of creative repair. It's also offering an alternative narrative to consumer culture. It's also a very serious topic that we need to look at how we can keep things going rather than dispose of them. Thanks to Jane Withers, Hans Tan, Dean Brown and Ryo Kobayashi speaking to Monocle's Tamsin Howard. R for Repair is presented by Design Singapore Council, Singapore's National Design Centre and the V&A Museum. It will be on show until the 2nd of October, 2022. An important part of the London Design Festival and a bellwether for the industry in the UK are the medals awarded by the festival each year. These are high accolades in the industry, with the London Design Medal given to an individual who has demonstrated consistent excellence. And this year, Sandy Powell scooped the prize. The costume designer has previously picked up three Academy Awards for her work on acclaimed films Shakespeare in Love, The Aviator and The Young Victoria. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, caught up with Sandy following the win, with Sandy beginning their conversation by reflecting on where her rebellious approach to costuming began. I started out in theatre. That's, that's the, the first work I ever did was in theatre and I, I, I was very lucky to start with somebody who whose work I'd seen as a teenager and completely blew me away, in the, who's a choreographer, dancer, director called Lindsay Camp, who I discovered, having read anything ever written about David Bowie, because I was a huge fan, that he actually taught David Bowie mime and dance, and particularly for the Ziggy Stardust era. So I went to see him at the theatre when I was about 16, and that was it. That changed my life. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of that world. 
And then I was fortunate enough to actually meet him when I, whilst I was still at college and left college, actually sort of dropped out in order to go and work with him. So that was my first experience in the, in the world of design was in the theatre doing dance and his particular style was out there. I mean, it really was extraordinarily visual and extreme. And I guess that is where I started. Theatrical costumes are obviously bigger and bolder because you're sort of having to, you know, be seen from the back row. And I, I think I kind of took that with me into film. And then the first films I did were working with Derek Jarman, who wasn't your conventional film designer either. And there was always a a sense of theatricality about his work too. So it's sort of pushing things a little bit. I mean, not as much as you would do in the theatre now I'm working in film, but I kind of have never, have never seen the, the point of just being ordinary, unless that is what it's meant to be, unless you're meant to be portraying the most ordinary person or ordinary world um, ever, then I, I kind of just like to push things a little. That's my own personal taste. Do you find yourself drawn to certain aspects of costuming or what's your favourite part of it to work on? The script is the first, is the most important thing. I have to be excited by the script to want to actually work on the costumes. A film could be set in a fantastic period that I haven't done or one that I really love. But if the script is not good or doesn't work or the characters aren't very good or I don't respect every other person involved in the project it wouldn't make it an exciting prospect for me. So I have to enjoy the script and the people I'm working with and the characters I'm designing for. So that is the starting point and that is what will get my juices flowing. From there, um, once you've maybe had, had a look at the script and you're doing sort of a breakdown of what you'll actually sort of be doing on the project, where do you turn next? Is it doing lots of period research? Is it just imagining what this world could be? We're talking about period films, which I, I guess is what I do. I mean, I just, I looked back through my... Um, my CV the other day, just because I always forget what I've done. There were, I think there's about two contemporary films in there over the last, you know, 35 years. I mean, there's very few. With period films, I mean, the first thing is, is reading the script, breaking down what is required. I mean, the numbers of costumes and, of course, talking to the director about their vision and, and what their expectations are and the world that they envisage. That's what you have to look at first. And then research and then just looking at images and research. And you research the actual period and then sort of go beyond that and research anything, anything visually that is relevant or, or inspirational. And quite often you end up with far more imagery than you can actually use. The next stage is I actually like to really get into textures and fabrics. So I am actually really interested in fabrics and colour and texture before even the specifics of what a costume is. So that's generally what I would look at next for inspiration. And then it sort of all starts coming together magically. <laughs> No, definitely. Because I was struck by yeah your use of, of, of fabrics in, in The Favourite. Maybe talk me through, because when people think of period dramas, and particularly ones where they're set in maybe more regal palaces and what have you, there's a certain sense of like opulence and, and decadence and lots of fabrics. But, you know, it's quite a muted palette. You've kind of got lots of blacks, whites, greys. Pretty much a monochromatic, apart from the in the parliament, then the politicians wore either red or blue waistcoats. But that was just the sort of define and the military did have red actually but on the whole it was monochrome there was a few reasons actually because of the period my main inspiration was a film called the draftsman's contract by peter greenway that i saw in the 80s and it kind of it really at the time it blew me away it was another one of those things that i saw in in my early years that really inspired me and the costumes were all black and white 
And then I actually saw an exhibition of them and couldn't believe them when I saw them up close because they were just made from calico and cotton canvas. They were the cheapest, cheapest possible fabrics, but beautifully made with attention to detail and, and correct period detail. The reason for that was obviously financial, you know, because it's really, really expensive to make fantastic period costumes, especially royal ones in, in, in the case of uh, the favourite, in the fabrics that they would have been made in, silks and velvets and yards and yards and yards of fabric are, you know, phenomenally expensive. We had no money on the favourite. We had money, but we had a, a minimal budget. It was a, it was a low-budget film and really very little for considering what we were trying to achieve. And it was also a very difficult period to replicate. Normally, you would be able to rent a proportion of your costumes, especially for extras, from costume rental companies. Uh, but this was a period that really hadn't been done, so there was nothing in existence apart from maybe tired, old things that would, you know, be better off in a panto sort of thing. So I had to make them all, and the only way I could do that was make them cheaply and economically. So my first thought was going back to the draftsman's contract and how great that looked. And I also thought it would it would work in the context of the film because the dialogue is not, not complicated, but there's so much going on with the dialogue that I quite like the idea of simplifying everything, you know, not having any fuss or anything messy on the screen to look at. So that was one of the reasons for using monochrome. And then it also actually made it much easier to source fabrics because you, could, you wouldn't waste time trying to find certain colours. But making everything black and white meant I could just go for any fabrics in those colours and was able to use, you know, very, very um, reasonably priced, cheap priced fabrics, lots of cottons. And I just dispensed with any 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 um, decoration, really. I thought, well, we can't afford to do embroidery. We can't afford jewellery. We had some jewellery. We just had pearls. Stripped it right back and just worked with detailing in, in black and white. And it sort of worked. Everybody believes it's a court. It doesn't, you don't have to be dripping in, in diamonds and pearls and uh, embroidery. And I guess for you, when you're, when you're watching films... What for you do you pay attention to most? Sort of when you're seeing the way the costume design has been approached, what are you always kind of noticing? My theory is if you watch the film and you really enjoy it, then the costumes have been good because they haven't distracted you. I mean, if you watch a film and then you're noticing something's wrong with the costumes, if you're noticing them too much over and above what's going on and they're a distraction, then they're not particularly good. So quite often really, really good costumes are the ones that you don't notice because that means they're completely believable, so they're not standing out. I mean, I think it's wrong to try and make every single costume a showstopper. You know, quite often you do see films, the kind that I don't like is when the lead person changes their outfit every time you see them. What they're wearing in the morning is not the same thing they're wearing at night or not, and they put something completely different on every single day of the week to go to work. And I, I think that's uh, unrealistic. Most people don't do that. There are some people who do that, but most people don't. You mentioned there your, your collaborations with Derek Jarman and um, the choreographer Lindsay Kemp. And, and you've worked across theatre, dance and, and film. I'm intrigued by this relationship between movement specifically and costume design. Mm -hmm. And I guess your thoughts on, on what it's like to, to see a garment brought to life and in action as opposed to on a mannequin. What, what is it about that moment when you see an actor in a design that, that, you've, that you're coming up with and maybe is still in production and needs a bit of tweaking. But tell me about that moment. 
That's what's traditionally known as the eureka moment if it happens. And it's usually in the fitting room. And it's probably, you know, a point in a fitting. I mean, you have more than... If we're making a costume from scratch for a period film, you have more than one fitting. If you're trying on vintage clothing or other clothing to, to get a look together, there is a moment when you realise it all comes together, hopefully. There should always be that moment. And sometimes it takes longer to get there than other times. But the moment when the actor has the costume on and then you don't see the actor anymore, you see the character. That's when it's exciting. And then there's another moment. Um, and then it's even better the first time you see them on set because then they have the hair and makeup and everything else that goes with it. I mean, I just get them in the, in the fitting room, you know, looking how they look, but with the costume on. But when you see it all put together and... You know, not just with the hair and makeup, but in the set. I mean, I always like to think, I, I want, you know, I need to know where they're going to be, what the background is, who everybody else is in the scene. Think of it as a whole. And then when you see all that put together, if it's successful, then that's, that's the best bit of the job, really. That's where you think, OK, I've done that bit. My thanks to Sandy Powell there. She was speaking to this show's producer, Maylee Evans. Finally on today's show, we're heading to Porro's new showroom in King's Cross, which opened to coincide with the London Design Festival. Here, I caught up with Maria Porro, Head of Marketing and Communications for the Heritage Italian Design brand, which was founded by her great-grandfather in 1925. As well as holding this role in the family business, she's also the president of Salone del Mobile, the world's largest design fair. Naturally, this resume leaves her well-placed to comment on the significance of design events from a city and organisers' perspective and a brand and showroom perspective too. I want to ask, as a design brand, how important is having a, a physical space, even if, it, even if it is small, for people to actually come together and, and talk and chat and architects connecting with the, the furniture brand and vice versa? London is just one hour and a half, two hours from Milano and from where our company is based. So it's very easy uh, from here to reach our production unit and to see how we produce and to understand what we do. But at the same time, we felt important to have a presence of the company, not only a physical presence of the products, but uh, people and the importance of meeting in person. So we think that uh, it was the right step to make in order to have the possibility to discuss around the table of projects. You know, after COVID and during COVID, we discovered how to work online, but somehow we rediscover how important it is to sit together on a table and to be able to sketch with a pencil on a plan. That is so important when you work on project and to touch the materials, to feel and to speak with the people you are working with, looking really into the eyes. That's why we decided to make this step now. So it's almost about people more than, than products in a way. I mean, we're also here, the opening has coincided with London Design Festival. How important are moments and, and gatherings like this to, I guess, people connecting face-to-face? What, what does it do for maybe Poro as a brand, but also the design community more broadly? You know, we are living lives where everything needs to be planned, uh, scheduled. We fill our agenda with, you know, meetings, online meetings. When there is a festival or a fair, there's this sort of serendipity of just meeting by chance. 
or discovering new places, discovering new people. So this is a sort of freedom. It's very, very, very important. And when you talk with somebody in person, it's, it's totally different, you know. And somehow you need to know somebody, really, you need to talk in person. And then you can go ahead with the call and the digital <laughs> conversation. But it's very important, the, the physical presence. That's why this kind of event are more and more important also for people, but for the product. Because, you know, through pictures, you can fake the quality. Everything can look good on a picture. But when you see it in person, it changes. Even if it's a small presence, it's a spot, but it's able to enlighten the quality of what we do and let you understand. It's a cultural thing, educational thing, and we decided to make this step because we feel it's very important to share this quality. I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here, but you're in charge of Salone del Mobile. We're here at London Design Festival uh, and there's events taking place throughout the week. Are there any key ingredients to a successful coming together of the community, conference or festival or fair? Well, it's a mix of different ingredients and uh, that makes uh, every event uh, different from the other. I know very well Salone because my company has been participating uh, in Salone since the very beginning. It's one of the 15 companies that have done all the 60 edition of Salone. And there it's an amazing possibility to show and to see the novelties and to see the trends and to see the anticipation. Sometimes you bring to Salone a product that is unfinished. So it's like a test for the market and you need to see the people in person trying and sitting on your chair to understand if it's gonna work. That is a, an amazing possibility. And then in big events like fairs, and especially at Salone, companies are designing their own space starting from a white paper. It's what Porro has done. No? You have um, a white paper, an empty space, and you have all the facilities to build up an amazing architecture. So together with Piero, we always create the ideal architecture and every company is doing this so you can walk through the pavilions and in two days you can discover what's the identity and what's the idea the future of the design and and furniture industry so that's why fairs like Salone del Mobile are so important and you know festival like Londonese festival is also important to discover the local culture the local approach to speak with the people speak with the hockey and understand how things are developing look around us it's full of uh, <laughs> buildings that are rising up and it's amazing we are in a square with there is the St. Martin school so you feel the energy and the soul of the city that's why festival like this are very important. I want to ask, I guess, just finally, for people that are listening that might be running their own furniture brands, whether that's fledgling or, or established, you know, you mentioned that Porro has been involved with Salone since day one, but you also come and get involved in London Design Festival. How do brands pick and choose what to get involved in? Because there is this such big calendar of events to select from. How do you 
make a decision of, of where and when to participate? Well, there are events where you, you have to be, like Salone uh, in Milano is the, you know, the point of reference for the, for the furniture industry. It's the heart. And then I think depending on your company and what you want to develop, so Poro wants to develop the projects and the contracts. And London is where a lot of important architectural studios and developers are based and uh, a lot of projects are starting from here to the world, so that's why we decided to be here. Of course, we have the St. Martins in front of us and the relationship with, you know, the education, and as we said, and uh, it's very important. So we decided to be here for this reason. Then it depends from company to company, which is the style you are promoting, which market you want to enter, what's your focus. So it's really considering and reflecting what you want to do. And, and then you say, you can't do everything sometimes the offer is overwhelming so my suggestion is to really uh, look inside yourself and your company and decide uh, what you want to develop and then they make the right choice but I'm sure that every entrepreneur is doing this kind of uh, reflection. Maria Porro there and that's all for today's show. For more design stories listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show Monocle on Design Extra which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylie Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Callum McLean. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.